Hello, I'm Adrian Wooten, Chief Executive of Film London and the British Film Commission, and I'm your host for Beyond the Frame, the new podcast series presented by Film London, where we talk to creative talent from across the screen industries about what they've created and how they've created it. There isn't much that's more cinematic than a good thriller. It's what phrases like edge of your seat action were made for. But creating a really top class thriller isn't easy. From laser focused screenwriting to frame perfect action, bringing a truly seat gripping thriller to life is a tricky business. In this episode, we talk to four people who know an awful lot about making a great British thriller. We have Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. Described as the custodians of the James Bond franchise, Broccoli and Wilson have together been producers of Bond films for over 30 years, wielding an unprecedented level of creative control over the fantastic franchise. We also have James Hawes, who's directed a whole host of blockbuster television thrillers in recent years, including Penny Dreadful, Snowpiercer, The Alienist and Black Mirror. Finally, we talk to Rennie Panavis, director of film London microwave thriller Looted, which was nominated for the Discovery Award in this year's British Independent Film Awards. First up, here's Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson discussing with me the history of James Bond and the creation of their new epic, No Time to Die. Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson were interviewed by me, Adrian Wooden. The thing that... No one wants to admit is that most people want things to happen to them. We tell each other lies about the fight for free will and independence, but we don't really want that. We want to be told how to live and then die when we are not looking. People want oblivion, and a few of us are born to build it for them. So here I am, their invisible god, sneaking under their skin. You know that history isn't kind to those who play god. And you don't? We both eradicate people to make the world a better place. I just want to be a little... tidier. Let me start by saying incredibly hotly massively anticipated movie the, the most probably the most anticipated bond of all time but looking at the documentary um it also seemed like it was maybe the toughest um bond movie you've ever had to make would you would you say it was the hardest one to make and if so what was most challenging for you as producers making no time to die i mean these films are very hard to make uh just under normal circumstances i mean you know, we tend to forget once we've made it how difficult it was. But, um, you know, they, we have six month shoots. We have multiple units traveling around the world. Um, you know, we have big action sequences. You know, there's they're always a challenge. And it's always so interesting because, you know, every time we go to make a film, the press are all over us. Oh, they're cursed. Bond is cursed again, you know. Uh, this has happened and that's happened. And, you know, it's just filmmaking, guys, you know, and for all the young producers out there, get ready when you make your movies to be, you know, thrown a whole bunch of problems. I mean, I always say to people, 
if you don't like problems, don't become a film producer because that is like 70% of what you have to do is troubleshoot problems. Um, so we had our fair share, didn't we, Michael? Yeah, we. Um, I think the if you look at the documentary, you see that every of uh, every one of the films had uh, plenty of problems. And, uh, you know, you take the in a Casino Royale, we were fighting uh, a negative press, uh, you know, on Daniel from while we're shooting, and that you know is a, uh, that's another emotional stress on top of everything else. But uh, you know, there were injuries, there were delays, there were always production issues. I don't think. Uh, uh, the last one was any worse than any of the others. Of course, we did have COVID to cope with after we finished the film, and uh, releasing it has been a more of a struggle than uh, we've had in other films, unfortunately. But uh, it looks like now things are getting back to normal, and uh, looks like we're going to be able to finally show this uh, in the cinemas, which is what we wanted to do all along. I just wondered if you could talk about. It, it's it, again. It's about your roles as as producers. You see, both of you are very hands on on set. And I wonder if you could just talk about, in a sense, what you think the from your perspective making Bond movies. But generally, the key attributes you, you've already mentioned, Barbara, solving problems and troubleshooting. But what from each of your perspectives you think it's absolutely critical for a good producer to either have or learn to have. Well, I think um, if you're going to be a creative producer, which is what Cubby was and the way he brought us up, then, you know, you have to find the story you want to tell. That's the key thing. And then you have to bring together the people that can help tell it best. And, the, you know, the talent you need, the director and the artists, the performing artists and the ones behind the camera especially are critical and, and barbara following on from what michael said new director obviously in this movie working with Karen, can you talk about you as a producer you as producers working with the director and and what the the kind of key element of that relationship is well obviously uh the director is at the helm of the movie and so i think you know as producers what you have to do as michael says first of all and we learned from the master i mean my father cubby broccoli was a master masterful producer and we learned from him and first of all you got to have passion for the subject i mean if you don't have passion for what you're doing you might as well don't get out of bed because uh you need the passion to drive you forward um so you as michael says you got to have the story in mind and you've got to get the key elements together. And then you have to find the director who's going to be able to translate the story into a vision, a cinematic vision. And uh, because let's face it, once the movie starts shooting, you know, the director is, is at the helm. And uh, so you have to then support the vision that, that they are trying to create cinematically. So, as Michael says, you have to all be on the same page when you start the cameras rolling, because then you're kind of, you're off and running. I mean, you can't stop at any point, then uh, it's just too, too expensive and too difficult to stop. So 
uh, you know, creative producing, work on the story, work on the screenplay, work with the director, get the cast together. Very, very important to get the cast together, get the financing together. I mean, that's the big thing that producers have to do. And that is becoming for independent producers more and more difficult now in this world. Um, You know, fortunately, Britain has a a wealth of talent here, uh, both in front of the camera and behind the camera. Um, So there's so many great talented people. So it's about trying to get those people onto your project. I mean, as we know, the British film industry is booming right now. And there, there is a huge shortage of people in the technical fields as well as the other as the creative field so you know um it's really a challenge right now getting the getting crews because everyone is busy so you know it's it's all of these things <laughs> come under the heading of producing so you know you've got to you've got to figure out you know what what your goals are and you've always got to keep the storytelling at the heart of everything. You ha- you can't lose sight of the story you're trying to tell. Obviously the bond is a global phenomenon, but how important is it to both of you that it's very much perceived as, as a British film franchise, as, as part and parcel in the, inside the DNA of the UK film industry and, you know, part of London, part of the UK as a whole? essential i mean bond is british through and through and you know the actors have always been british it was written by ian fleming who was british we try to keep the writers as much as possible british and the directors as well i mean carrie is the first american director um we've had basically british and commonwealth directors uh up until now um the supporting cast all the you know we try to keep them as british as possible uh you know he is a british hero um and it's vitally important to us. I mean, our, my father moved here in 1952 and, and basically made all of his pictures in Britain, many pictures before James Bond. Um, he never made a picture in the United States, in fact. Uh, so he was an Anglophile, as was Harry Saltzman, his partner, who was Canadian. So, uh, you know, the humor is British. The, you know, it's very, very important to us that the films are steeped in British culture. And I was just going to ask you the last couple of things. One was you mentioned cast and the importance of cast comes across very strongly in the documentary. You have really close relationships to the cast. And obviously you've, you've, you've both had an incredibly close relationship with Daniel Craig over these five movies, this 15 year period. Could you talk about how important it is to have you as producers to have that that really close working relationship with your your leading man, your star, and Daniel in particular. Well, I think um, it's uh, it's it's always been the case with the uh, with the leading man and the producer. You know, Cubby always had a great relationship with uh, with his uh, most of them, and I remember uh, with uh, you know him playing backgammon with Roger Moore uh, uh, during the in between takes. They would. Uh, uh, they would socialize all the time, and uh, and it was they were all they were very very close. The families have always been close too, and and uh, and so it, that's been a tradition that uh, that was established then, and we continued with it. But the thing about um, Daniel is that um, you know, to uh, you ha- he has to feel, or any actor who plays the part has to feel that they can. Sp- speak up, t- 
talk about what they want to do, not only with the director, which is the, you know, no, the normal communication, but during the, during the creative process when the script's being written, to be able to talk to the producers and, um, and the director and understand where this is going and, and what exactly what the story is, and then make the major contributions, because these actors are all very, very creative. Uh, uh, they're very uh, thoughtful. They they work very hard, and they uh, they contribute a great deal to the uh, to the story. And good actors do that, uh, even as the smaller parts. Uh, so it's um, uh, to bring out the best in the actors. You've got to, they need a, a they need to have a voice. And in terms of this film particularly, and we're all incredibly excited to see it. Obviously, all Bond movies have an element of the classic, the familiar, and then the outrageously new uh, that, that you're always looking for. And again, I'm, I'm picking up on that sort of plot versus sort of, how important was you, particularly with this being Daniel's last film, that, that, it, that it had all the classics, but it had things that really people would say, we haven't seen that before in a Bond movie. It, this is so fresh. This is so distinctive. But I think when you, you said about the plot, I think that in every case we try to go at, uh, when we're creating the story with the writers, we try to ask the question in, in two years time, what will be on the public's mind as a serious threat or concern? So uh, that's something we've tried to do with, usually with some success, um, but um, uh, that forecasting the future is always difficult, but we try to do that with the writers. So, uh, and I think we've succeeded in this case. It, you've already given us great insight and, and thoughts about um, production, but if you were to give each one piece of advice for an emerging producer starting out making their first feature in the business, you, you've talked about troubleshooting and getting the cast and passion for the story, but can you each give me a piece of advice that you give to that, that young producer that's trying to get that first film together? I think um, the most important thing is to choose your collaborators you know, find your tribe, find the people that you have, you know, uh, a similar aesthetic with, you know, I mean, this is the thing, the extraordinary thing about what Cubby did from the very first Bond film, you know, when you look at it, the DNA of these films, I mean, he had, you know, obviously Ian Fleming, but Richard Maybaum writing, um, you know, Terrence Young, John Barry creating the music, Ken Adam doing the sets. And, and those people remained pretty constant um, in the early, early days. And that's something Michael and I have, have really tried to continue, which is we, we find our, our tribe. Uh, we've had, you know, Chris Corbold and mm -hmm. Peter Lamont and all these various wonderfully talented people over many, many years uh, working on these films. And so develop your relationships, choose them wisely, and you'll, you know, you'll be, you benefit tremendously from that. And and just finally, on, on terms of you, your two's working relationship, obviously there's lots of individual creative producers. It's not that common to have some people who've worked so closely and well together for so long on such a, a big franchise. And I'm just wondering, could you tell us a little bit about what the secret is to to you being a, a kind of production double act in that sense. And do you, do you have very clearly defined responsibilities or do you basically, do you talk about all the decisions together or, or is there a way you, you divide the way you work? Everything. 
we discuss everything. And, you know, you find that when new people come on the production, if they don't get the answer they want, they go to one of us and then they don't get the answer, they go to the other one. And what they find out very quickly is they get the same answer uh, <laughs> because we tend to really agree on everything except for politics. <laughs> Although we're agreeing now on politics more as well as the horrendous politics are, uh, are emerging. We've actually come very close together on things. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we are of one mind. And in that kind of one mind, then what, what do you both enjoy most about being producers, not just generally, but of the Bond movies, particularly, what, what do you enjoy most and, and what do you enjoy least? I mean, for me, the thing I love the most is the talent. To mm -hmm. me, seeing somebody fabulous, just it's that's the that gets the adrenaline going. I mean, discovering talent or working with people that you've admired and wanted to work with, uh, that whole relationship of um, exploring talent together to me is is absolutely the best. Uh, the worst part of it for me is flying <laughs> i don't like flying well, press and marketing are always uh difficult um and i don't think there are too many people that really enjoy it as such but uh um the um i, I enjoy is crafting the story and the and the plots and working you know with scenes and things like that kind of and of course the talent is wonderful you know to work with them Thank you both very much. I think I think at this point uh, I'm, I'm going to get ushered out of my my virtual room with you. So I, I wish you the best with the rest of the press marketing uh, today. Good luck with the film. Can't wait to see it. And uh, and thank you for talking to the Film London podcast. Thank you. Thank you to Barbara and Michael for joining me for that interview. No Time to Die is currently available to watch in UK cinemas. Now here's James Hawes discussing his career including directing TV thrillers. James Hawes was interviewed by our creative programs advisor, Nadia Oliver. James, it is a pleasure to be talking to you today. Thank you so much for being here. It's lovely to be here. Nice to meet you. Likewise. Um, James, it feels like many of your efforts as a director and producer have been about using the prism of imaginary future worlds as a way to hold up a mirror to the big issues that are sort of affecting us right now. And while it may look and feel like a science fiction dystopia, more and more your work on things like Snowpiercer and Black Mirror really start to feel all too real. Um, for example, with Snowpiercer, it was released in May 2020 when the entire world was in lockdown. And it's effectively a show about people forcibly confined to tight quarters during an apocalypse that was caused by plutocrats who used harsh methods to ensure that their own lives will continue uninterrupted while the less fortunate suffer. And I can't imagine a better time in history to release a show like that. Um, what was the conversation like around releasing Snowpiercer last year during a pandemic when societal inequities have really come to the fore? And what's the response been like so far? Um, yes, I mean, Snowpiercer is in many ways the ultimate lockdown TV series um, in that you've got the entire character cast locked in a metal tube for seven plus years. Um, and there was a discussion, is this really the show that people who are locked into their homes and their apartments and their very small spaces uh, facing their own 
apocalypse or certainly the nearest thing we ever knew to it, is this really going to be your escapist series of the moment? But actually, we always treated the series as not being about containment and struggle and ardor. It was about being uh, the triumph of human survival instinct and the triumph of the human spirit over the circumstances they find themselves in. Um, and obviously, in the end, it's a relationship piece. Like any good drama, there are the relationships, the challenges, the power struggles, the jealousies. Uh, and whether you're playing that on some great open African plain or stuck in a tin can, the human truths are the same. And it seemed to chime. I mean, we're now commissioning the, the greenlit for season four. Absolutely. Congratulations on that. When you're essentially making something about worlds other than our own, um, that may or may not look like our own world, how are you thinking as a director or a producer in terms of balancing kind of the fantastical elements, but also making sure that it feels really grounded in, in reality? How are you sort of thinking through that? That is, I think, one of the most intriguing and challenging bits of the director's job. And it is the director who leads that hand in hand with the showrunner, the writer, um, whether it's Black Mirror or Snowpiercer. Um, obviously, in some instances like Snowpiercer, there was the movie as part of our, of our influence. influence. Um, there were the original graphic novels, uh, which was part of the inspiration. But we wanted to make it feel now. And as you put your finger on it, you want it to feel rooted. You want it to feel real. And the showrunner on Snowpiercer, Graham Manson, was absolutely religious about the fact that the science all had to kind of add up. Um, so there was a theory to everything. In the tail section, there was nothing that they had that couldn't have been scavenged from the luggage that the rich people brought on board or couldn't have been made from what was around them um, or that they'd managed to grab with them. They didn't suddenly have... Uh, access to endless battery supplies or, or new hairdos. Um, so keeping that, once once you've got the story in the world, writing the rule book and then playing the whole drama within those rules is really key. Obviously, there's the aesthetic aspect of it as well. What does that world look like? Um, and Snowpiercer is a very good example where we wanted each section of the train to have its own uh, very distinct atmosphere and, and feeling. So you, you, you sensed, although you were stuck on one train, that you travelled through different worlds with the story in any given episode. Yeah, and it definitely comes through. Um, you, you referenced, obviously, it's an adaptation of uh, Bong Joon-ho's film of the same name, which was in turn based on the graphic novel by Jacques Lobb. Um, in these early conversations, I mean, something like Snowpiercer feels very collaborative. As you say, every piece needs to be very well-researched and has to make sense and be sort of rooted in reality. So how, how did you sort of first approach this as an adaptation and what did those early stages of research look like with other heads of department? First of all, you need to know that there was an original pilot that had been done for the TV show. So we, we had quite a lot of stuff to work with and against. Um, the pilot version was done by a different director who had a very different vision of how it should be. Um, so... I had the challenge of harnessing the best of what director Bong, for instance, brought to that, um, and then taking it beyond in whatever way we could. You have, obviously, you start with the script. What, is, what does we need, what world do we need to service the script? You also um, take inspiration from, frankly, what a real train looks like. So we all, with the, the design crew, went on a train trip in Canada. 
it sounds crazy, but you don't look at a train in those ways until you stand on a train thinking, I've got to make a drama on one. We talked about how much of director Bong's movie did we want to pull into ours? How many more layers did we want to put in because we're 10 years later? Uh, and it, it is then that wonderful tension between the departments where maybe special effects will say, well, look, what if the train looked like this and was really deco? And then design department will say, I don't want it to be too deco because that's going to feel a bit she-she and, and we want it to feel muscular. No, we want it to look pretty. So you literally have all the departments represented around the table and you will talk about the restaurant car or the tail and you'll discuss everything from the fittings to the colour of the paintwork. And then the, the cinematographer will come in and he or she will start talking about how they want lighting to be there. Like in the tail, there are no windows. How are we going to light this place? What does it feel like? Um, biosec. Now, there's this car which is biosecurity, the transfer between the dirty tailies and up train. Now, the conversation about that was, was about the science. What would they actually do? How would be the, they be hosing them? But also the message we wanted an audience to take away from that. We wanted that to have a resonance that's also almost Nazi Germany, that, that has this sense of people being treated as, as um, subhuman, as infectious beasts. So we played with other uh, examples of authoritarian regimes to reflect how we felt the train was being ruled. Uh, and at that point, you invite costume in and they start uh, talking about whether whether the crew wear a uniform and uh, whether the... Um, whether it's branded, and it, it really is a tension, a creative tension between all the departments, and somehow then the director's role is to sift the best of these ideas and make sure that they cohere, that they still all stick together. It isn't just a pick and mix from a random candy store. Right, and you also, um, in Smithereens, which is the Black Mirror episode that you, you directed, and in Snowpiercer as well, um, you know, you reference this sort of collaborative collaborative effort that's all sort of in one location. And I'm thinking of Smithereens as well, because it's mostly in, in a car, an Andrew Scott's car, which I can imagine is quite difficult to make interesting as a director. Um, what kind of techniques did you and the team sort of use to build and stoke tension in these confined spaces, um, both in Black Mirror and in Snowpiercer? Uh, well, let's talk about Smithereens for the moment. Um... Uh, you're quite right. And one of the things that frightened us was the fact that most of the 75 minute film takes place in, in a car. Um, we rehearsed in the car. Uh, again, I used the cinematographer and we looked for the angles in the car and we decided that we could we could get some pretty arty shots, um, breaking the frames, being very black mirror about the angles. And again, using the fact that they're in a confined space to give it a pressure cooker. But also it was where we then crashed the car that became key. Now, Charlie's script talked about it going through a hedge and ending up in a field. I was worried that if we just did that in the wrong field, in the wrong part of green England, it would look like a bad episode of Midsummer Murders um, and just feel very safe and, and pleasant and green. So we went out to look for a field that would be in, be near something that had scale and industrial graphics about it. And we found this extraordinary field with these huge electricity pylons striding through it. And by complete luck, they planted them with peas when we came to shoot. So you got this bright green 
surreal field, these huge pylons, which not only gave us a visual graphic, but buzzed the whole time and gave danger to the helicopters that came over the top. Uh, and so although you're inside the car, when you look to the outside, we gave it the scale of a, a Western with a standoff and the, uh, the siege going on from the distance round and about. I love hearing about happy accidents like that, just the, the pea field sort of adding to this sort of aesthetic. Well, no, I was going to say, we then had to shoot around the peas because we knew if we went in and did the stuff around the car, first of all, the entire crew would have trodden on them. So we had to shoot all the wide shots and gradually work in as we trashed the peas on the way to get into the close-ups in the car. That must have been complicated. Um, in, in your work as a director and producer, it often balances this very unique tone, I think, um, for something that could be characterized as a thriller. Um, how do you sort of balance directing the bigger moments that we associate with thriller versus sort of the quieter scenes? Um, well, you're completely right. And in pre-production, those big set pieces can suck all the resources and all the attention. And they become the things that um, preoccupy quite often um, the schedulers and the directors because you're, you're thinking about how am I going to make it work in five days? How am I going to get the helicopters in the right place? Uh, and I have at some point in my career decided that actually the most important moments are the close-up actor scenes because they will give it the heart. So having found the pea field, it really was about the performance between Damson and Andrew in the car and making sure we gave ourselves, the actors especially, time to work on their performances and to capture that in that moment. Again, think of the moment where uh, Andrew Scott's character first discovers that Damson is an intern in the subway area. Um, we gave ourselves a whole day to do that sequence because we wanted the performance to be king. So it's about being quite disciplined with yourself and as a director, being very involved in the planning of the shoot and not just the logistical planning and not just the creative moments. You have to be involved, I think, in the scheduling and how the resources are used to buy yourself creative space on the day when it really counts. During the week that we're having this conversation, Instagram, Facebook and WhatsApp clambered to get back online after a server error caused a global outage lasting several hours. And it really felt like a key moment where we were hopefully interrogating big tech, but also our relationship to technology, much like in the two Black Mirror episodes you directed, one that we referenced already, Smithereens, and then the other one, which is one of my favorites, Hated in the Nation. What do you think that television as a medium can do to illuminate what's happening right now? And how do you think thrillers and science fiction are maybe changing as genres, given how culture and technology and politics are unfolding at rapid pace? I think the answer is that they need to keep changing and keep responding. Because honestly, the fodder for story out there right now, I mean, you couldn't make half of this up. And just to remind you, uh, or maybe you don't know this, when we did um, Hated in the Nation, You'll remember that a strong part, a big part of the story is the robot bees. And the idea is that bees are largely dying out. So mankind has had to invent a robot bee to do the mechanical job of pollination to keep us going. Well, you'd think that's crazy. But we discovered that Harvard already had, has a prototype swarm of robot bees because of exactly that. When I did Snowpiercer, um, the, the conceit is that global warming had got to such an extent that scientists come up with this idea of trying to cool the earth and so they send missiles into the stratosphere 
scattering some sort of layer of filtration to dim the sun, to cool us down. And of course, they overcook it and freeze us instead. While we were shooting Snowpiercer, there was another combined university project that was coming up with some idea of shooting particles into the atmosphere to try and filter the sun. Um, I don't know if these guys are reading the graphic novels and coming up with science along those lines, probably partly. Um, but people like uh, the like Graham, uh, Graham Manson and, and like Charlie Brooker are clearly putting their finger on the very sharp leading edge of what is happening to us. And then what I think is brilliant about those sorts of shows is it shines a light back on the way we live and the decisions we're making. I don't, I don't, I mean, how long did you put down your phone for after watching Hated in the Nation? Probably not at all. The whole point of the end of Smithereens was that people would think who died and pick up their phones to see. And in the act of doing that, Charlie and I hope the film itself had made people um, complicit in the story of, of the moment. Um, I think television has a rich role to play in examining quite where we are now and where we're going. I think it makes for great, if not always comfortable, storytelling. Absolutely, and everything you described is absolutely chilling <laughs> as well. Um, it does feel like when I you know, first watched these episodes of Black Mirror and also Snowpiercer as well, it's not the far-reaching stretches of our imagination of what the future is. It's kind of like just a few steps ahead. And as you say, there's sort of this sense where science is kind of catching up and life is stranger than fiction in some ways. Um, given this sort of timeliness of the issues that are presented in, in works like that, in terms of releasing these things, do you ever fear that once the episodes actually come out, that the conversation will have moved on or, or shifted in some way? Yeah, I, I guess there's always a risk. Um, I think that um, the team with Black Mirror are are so on top of that that they tend to be ahead of most of what's happening. And then if you think of something like Snowpiercer, the emotional stories that they tell have um, a longevity in the telling. Um, so I think it's usually accommodated. Um, there are. I'm going to tell you a slightly different story. Um, back in 2010, I had an idea for a series um, which we call DNA 113. Um, and it went into development for a while and stalled. And then in 2018, 19, I was reviving it with some of the team behind Snowpiercer. And the idea behind this story was that there was a SARS-like virus um, that swept Europe um, and that we discovered that some people exhibited the symptoms and could be infectious. They were carriers and it was about the governmental response to this and how a right-leaning government um, used this as an opportunity to bring in ID cards. And then, of course, COVID happened. And everything that was in that three-page document has now taken place. So the project is dead because we've lived it already. I was a few years too late. Um, so there's an example of where, yep, I, I'm, I'm afraid uh, we, we were too slow. That's really crazy to hear. I mean, we're obviously living in such dark times right now. And I mean, we've sort of been talking about this a little bit, but even, you know, with your writer hat on or your, your producer hat on, in terms of the audience's appetite for 
dystopic or even just generally intense content, do you think that our current moment will change what people want to watch? Do you think that the appetite is more comfort watching or how do you well, sort of make sense of that? Soderbergh's Contagion was the most watched film uh, during the pandemic. So whether people wanted to watch it for reasons of education or, or, or to see themselves in, in some Hollywood drama, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I think there's no doubt that people want some escapism as well as, at the moment. You want the light, bright, humorous shows. Um, I, well, I'm going to talk personally. I don't want to be endlessly watching post-apocalyptic stuff if it's too rooted and, and naturalistic at the moment. It's just, uh, I, I mean, I know a lot of people who love Black Mirror say they can only manage an episode every few weeks because it can be so black. Uh, it's compelling, but it can take you to a very dark and scary place. Um, I think there's a balance. And I, I know that commissioners at the moment are sort of saying we need some more escapist stuff. We need true stories, but with happy endings. I mean, it's interesting. I feel like there's almost this paradox there because, you know, at the same time, um, we definitely need escapism right now. But, you know, Squid Game, which I just blitzed through, is apparently the most popular show in 93 countries around the world or something like that. And that is far from being um, cushy, comforting content. So there does seem to be, you know, I mean, I suppose that's escapist in another way because hopefully it's removed from a reality it's, it's removed from a reality. It also offers the possibility of escape to people in ground-down lives. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest indicator of, of all, um, that we want to believe that we could get out of your particular rut, whatever that may be. There's, there's always the possibility. Um, the fact that people have been dialing the numbers that were shown on the phones, I don't know if you picked up on that, but there's the news item today that... Um, the characters, uh, obviously, during the drama, there are, there are these phone numbers, and people have been and, and people are encouraged within the cast to dial them to, to get on the show. People have been dialing it in real life, and it turns out that some poor person owns that number and has been deluged with um, with calls. Um, so there you are again. It's a whole different thing. The line between fiction and and fact, and um, where people do or don't see what's real. I mean, I spent a lot of my pandemic reading i couldn't watch contagion personally things like that did not interest me because we were living it but i was reading a lot of sort of old literature about old plagues i guess trying to make sense of how you know like camus and the decameron and things like that trying to make sense of how we as a society sort of deal with this thing these things it struck me that you know and a couple other people have mentioned this that you know the spanish flu killed more people than World War One, and yet it wasn't really documented at that time um, in in art. And I wonder what you think about, you know, do you think that there's maybe a, a stasis period as we all process and maybe, you know, half a generation away, there will be tons more COVID stuff? Do you, do you think that this will? I think so. I think we need, I mean, obviously, within the first couple of months, there were those very inventive um, lockdown dramas that people made, often filmed remotely, um, and uh, I, I think that uh, looking at tech another way, it was brilliant that people were coming up with those ideas and finding a way to tell the story. Um, uh, I do think, and I hope, there will be those stories told. 
I'm not necessarily going to say drama. Maybe there's some other genre and drama docu that we haven't yet found. Um, uh, I think you need a little bit of distance to see what the story is and where it is. I cannot think of anything since the meteor killed the dinosaurs that so unified the planet in a similar experience. Um, you can talk about world wars. You can talk about the fact that there have been famines in different parts of the planet. But for so many people in the world to have been faced by the same illness, by the same loss of liberty, um, of daily routine, the tragedy of losing loved ones, um, for it to have been so universal uh, is quite awe-inspiring. And I don't think anything I've seen or read has yet represented that or dug into what that means, that connectivity. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule. And it's been so nice to talk to you, James. Thanks so much. And you, Nadia. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to James for that chat. Here's Rene Panavis discussing his debut feature, Looted. Rene Panavis was interviewed by BFI Network talent executive, Josic Cadaray. Hey, Renee. Welcome to the podcast. Our genre this week is thriller. Um, listen, I'm going to jump straight into talking about your work. I absolutely loved your debut feature, Looted. Are there any films or directors that inspired you to want to want to become a, a filmmaker? Well, I, I just saw a lot of films when I was young. Um, that's, I think that's, that's, that's first, first of all, that's the most important thing. But for me, I come from a family which is uh, uh, where being a director or being working in movies was not really, um, how do you say that, any given thing. I was more of like, we were coming from a social workers family. So that was more like a hobby. And when all my education kind of uh, um, turned to shit, uh, just to say like that, um, I turned back, like, okay, it's better for me to study something that I really like, like subjects that I really like and film or something that I always was very fond of, but I never thought that you could actually have a, a job in it. So then I did film study um, through film study, I actually went up to going to film school, um, but it started off very young by watching films and thinking of how the story would evolve. So I was always, when I was young, like from six years old, I was already watching films, thinking about the structure or like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? So I was kind of imagining already the story. Gotcha. So I understand that at the, at the tail end of this uh, passion, you decided to, at some point you decided to go to an international film school. Um, yes. How old were you then? I think at that time I was 25. That was after film study. I did film study in order to, because I didn't have a film camera, I didn't have any creative portfolio, so I couldn't do like something more like a film academy, a film school. So I did film study. That's the only theory. And I thought like, okay, via film theory, I tried to get hands-on on set and tried to become a director via that path. And it was very clear in Holland that one, it's a very small network. If you're not doing film school or the, the, the Dutch Film Academy, it's very difficult to get in, to get into the little, in a little bubble. So yeah, then I went, then I got accepted with at NYU Tisch, uh, which is like a three, four year uh, MFA graduate film school. So you would recommend that experience? Well, yeah, well, not for your wallet. It's uh, it's really, really expensive. I got a good scholarship. Without that, it wasn't possible uh, to go to, to film school. It's very, very expensive. And you have to pay for all your own films because you have to do two, two films or three films a year, like short films, um, plus your tuition, plus your stay. It's really, really expensive. But it's a fantastic experience because all your classmates, uh, you learn from a lot. You learn from your teachers. But you brief cinema throughout those three years. And you can actually 
at school you can try lots of things like make lots of mistakes like when you when you put your own money in a short film which i did project uh suddenly it's, it becomes a different thing you can't fail technically uh or you don't want to fail and on film school it doesn't really matter it's only your teachers that are really going to see the film and you have more you can try more things Okay, well, let's let's talk about Jacked. Um, uh, just to give it some some uh, background, you applied to Film London, which is how I first met you with the film, and uh, we 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 loved the script and we wanted to support it. So, um, so we did that. Jacked to the script is is very impressive. It's uh, very tight. Uh, you had some fantastic actors in there. Um, so my big question is so. <laughs> In the film, you demonstrate how a spark plug fragment can be used to shatter a car window. Are you worried that you've inspired a generation of car thieves? Good question. <laughs> Good question. Um, well, it's not really a smart way of of, uh, of stealing cars, to be fair. So, if people really, if I, if I, then I, at least I inspired dumb dumb car thieves, I guess. Um, you know, it, it makes quite a, a quite a bang. Uh, it's quick to get into a car, but you you attract a lot of uh, attention. It's just for the visuals to smash a window looks better than to pin like something on the top or whatever. Um, that's why we use a spark plug to smash windows. It's it's visual. As I understand it, that film was never a concept movie or a concept short for a bigger film, but it was the kernel of what became um, looted later on. Um, can you can you talk to a little bit more about about why you wanted to tell that story? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Jack is 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 is, is very autobiographical. Like, uh, I mean, when I was young, uh, a lot of my friends uh, they didn't really steal cars to sell them, but they they stole cars for joyriding. So it's a little bit different than in the short. And at that time, uh, very well, very recently, I also lost my father because of uh, dying from cancer, uh, asbestos cancer. So those two elements were were in that short, and for me it's a, it's a perfect short because it's 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 in in, in twelve minutes uh, it still has an emotional arc but it has excitement it has a, a lot of joy because with my friends in the old days like uh, they were a lot of fun but if you didn't know them you were really afraid of them and that's the act that's the crime thriller element that comes back in that because you just don't don't yeah mess with these with these punks that's something that I that I grew up with. Um, when I finished Jacked, I was actually writing a different feature, more on the ferry, more on the boat. But then I realized there was so much more that I still wanted to say. And there was also an element of like my father died of doing his job. And that was something that I was like, okay, I think it's very important to tell that message. Um, and what does it affect to a son? Like uh, they don't have enough time left together and they have a really bad relationship together. And so it's actually it's too late to really fix that relationship. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand. So that, that, that there's that kind of weird thing of, of it's very autobiographical in, in lots of ways, although I, I can see that it's set in a different country. There's, there's so many things that are very, very different about it. But at the same time, you've kind of taken your story and you have given it a genre structure. You have given it the structure of not, not a heist movie, but there are the, the, very loosely through the film. From the outset, they are committing small robberies, and the the big event in the film that that obviously lots of other things converge onto um, is the big robbery that they have to make, without giving away too much. And um, 
And so that is a kind of a, 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 a genre element. Was that something that was there from the outset or did you, through your writing process, gradually kind of come to decide that this was how it was going to be structured? Yeah, I think through the writing process. Also, like uh, NYU is very is, is a film school and they're very based on European cinema, but they st- also still, you know, regard lots of stuff like structural and genres, and they're very based on that as well. So through film school, you I think unconsciously you're already writing in, in certain genres. Like if it's a, if it's a crime or is a thriller, you eventually you will have a, a turning a turning point or you, you will have a climax. Where, where where it all comes together, and I think unconsciously that's 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 in my writing. I'm not really looking for it. Um, also, because it's a lot of stuff is based on my personal experience. Like a friend of mine, uh, when they all got caught, and he, he spent a, a couple of days in jail in the police uh, in the precinct, uh, he snitched on his friend, and then from that moment on, um, everybody turned on him. Although they never knew actually if he really snitched on them. But that's just the word that came out. And he had to move to, uh, he actually moved countries, by the way. I don't, I don't think that was that necessary. But he had to, he had to leave the village or this, 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 this small city where, where I grew up close to Rotterdam uh, because of that threat. So they were best friends together and, then, uh, and, and, and eventually they turned enemies. And I think that's, that's something that's in Luther, like your best friend becomes your, becomes your enemy. Um, and, and that's very scary. So that that was always going to be in there, and in order to to get there, to get to that moment, then I think you just yeah, good writing always follows a certain path. I think, um, and then you'll you'll get there. You'll 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 find your climaxes at one point when you're writing. Well, I, so there's there's several other things I, I wanted to ask you about. One is the fact that it, a lot of it is set in a car. Jack is set in a car. Quite a bit of looted is set in cars. Can you tell us a little bit about how you did that? What the dynamic was? How did you direct remotely? Yeah, I mean, for Jack, I spent practically every, yeah all time in the booth uh, of the Tata, which is quite a big car, so I had a lot of space. But we didn't have that big car in looted, so I was really, really cramped um, in the back for like an hour and a half in the car. That was like really painful. And then for another take. I was sitting actually in the, in the car behind, um, and then you just go. Everything goes via radio mic, and you communicate through radio mic to the actors. But yeah, I actually I prefer to be in the car somehow. Like with Jack, I was always in the car, and you can actually hear me laughing uh, if if you if you listen well, um, because they would do a lot of improv uh, conversation as well, and I. I just couldn't hold, hold my laugh. So actually it's, it's in there. But uh, yeah, I prefer to be in the car. I, I, you, you feel the dynamic better between the actors and you, you can be spot on. Everything via, via radio mics is, is a little bit clunky. But also with Jack, it was easier to shoot because it was a bigger car and we didn't have to brick the camera with all kinds of straps and looted for safety. We had to strap. So every setup, you can only watch like one person. And then for every setup, it was like an hour, an hour or two hours to, to, to rig. Um, that was just a nightmare. And then the car, of course, broke down. Uh, there were kids in the, in the neighborhood who stole the valves of the, of the wheels because we were shooting in Hartlepool, which have some dodgy areas as well. Fits the story, though. Um, not complaining. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a bit... It's, it's difficult cars, but I like it because, I, you know, like two people in a the, in the room, uh, you have to be a really good director and a really good writer to make that work. Um, in car, there's just, there's just lots going on. And 
there's also distraction going on, which is, I think is really good. I think two men in a car, if you want them to talk, do it. In, if you want two men to talk, let's do it in a car because somehow they open up. Maybe because they don't have, they don't look in each other's eyes. It's just a thing when the man is on the steering wheel, they, 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 it's, it's all more natural. It's easier to talk. And I've got another question about the, the, the combination of Jacked and Looted, which is that the first thing I noticed when I was watching Looted was that the roles had switched. Um, in Jacked, um, Thomas Turgus, uh, I should say that, that uh, the two main roles are played by the same actors in both Jacked and Looted. But when you watch Looted, you can't help but notice that they've, they've switched, not personalities, but... Uh, but roles in a, in a really interesting uh, and subtle way. And I, I was uh, really interested in it. But then I, I heard in an interview uh, that you gave that it was because one of them didn't have a driving license. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Like that was with Jack. Um, we had, we had casted Thomas Turgus and not uh, Charlie, uh, not Rob, the character of Rob uh, played by Charlie Palmer Rothwell. So we had Thomas Turgus and he was a driver. And I think a week and a half, we still didn't have the, the, the other actor. Uh, yet and a week and a half before, I was just chatting with, uh, with 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 Thomas, and he just he mentioned like, yeah, you know, you know, I can drive. That's really not a problem, but I don't have a driver's license. And I was like, and I was like, oh, I, I can't drive in London with you without a driver's license. So then suddenly we actually had to look for an actor who could drive because clearly the whole film also because I like naturalism, I like realism. This was not going to be on a on a low load. This was going to be for real. Like they're going to they're going to drive through London. So we had to find somebody who was doing the driving. But but initially, I had always Thomas behind the wheel. So I had to rewrite quickly, like this couple of days before the shoot, in order to make it all sense and 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 have them swapped. Mm-hmm. And yet it works. And yet it works perfectly. And and so, but then when when looted happens, um, the. There is a switch in the sense that in Jacked, uh, the Charlie uh, Rothwell uh, character is the one that's hard, that wants to take the car to, to get the cash. And, it, and um, I've forgotten his name. Is it Leo, the, the name that, uh, that uh, Thomas uh, Turgus plays? He's the one that wants to stop and to do the right thing, that has a sort of an ethical conundrum. Whereas in Looted, it's the other way around. Thomas Turgus is the one who is there for the money. It, you, it, it, you, you, of, of course, you're like um, you identify with characters, but with a short, you can get away with much more. I think for a feature to to watch a guy that's a bit more unlikable, I think it, it would be good for Looted if you feel sorry for the main character and not if he's just a punk. And I think if 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 Rob, the main character, would be like Leo inject, he would be a bit of a badass, a badass that doesn't really care, not so much of an emotional arc. I think for the audience. To sit through ninety minutes of that might be a bit too much to ask. Um, I think if if you want to, we wanted to feel the audience to feel sorry for Rob, like he has a dying father, he wants to keep his friends, like he's doing, he's not a, yeah, he's he's not a bad kid, you know, he has a, his heart is in the right place. Hmm. He just has all these things. He just makes bad decisions, and I thought it would have been better if he was a much nicer character. Gotcha. That was the main, yeah. So can I ask what projects you're working on? What can we hope to see from you in the future? I've written a feature film, uh, Why We Gurn, that's uh, opted by uh, two production companies. One is a Dutch one and one is an English one, Salon uh, and, uh, and Levitate. And we're in the middle of, uh, of financing or funding. So again, I hope that BBC Films and BFI obviously is interested. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm 
thrilled and and still very happy that they supported my first uh, my debut feature so i would love to work in the future of course with the bbc films and bfi so who knows um but this is my big bigger second feature bigger budget um and again it's a little bit similar in crime fantastic the heart's in the right place (laughs) (laughs) oh we definitely look forward to hearing more about that and hopefully seeing it on the big screen thank you very much renee welcome thank you thank you so much to renee penovis for that chat looted is currently available to rent on the bfi player Next week, we're talking comedy with two more fantastic guests. Until then, this has been Beyond the Frame, presented by Film London, and I'm Adrian Wooten. Thank you very much.